want you to imagine a stranger entering Jerusalem on the morning of the crucifixion. He's come all the way from his hometown of Philippi, which is a Roman colony in Greece, to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It's the first time in his life he's been in the Holy City. And like most expatriate Jews, he finds it all unbearably exciting. But there's something going on here that he's never seen before. In Philippi, crucifixions are rare since most of the inhabitants are Romans and the law forbids the crucifixion of a Roman citizen. He's heard of crucifixion, of course, but this is the first time he's ever seen one and he's transfixed by the sights and the sounds, the puddles of blood, the catcalls and jeers of the crowd, the horrible moaning of the men on the crosses. There are three men suspended on that hill but all eyes seem to be on the one in the center. He's been beaten so badly that his face is swollen and discolored. There are lines of red-brown blood radiating like rays of the sun running down his shoulders and chest and back. He's been ruthlessly scourged, and his flesh is torn and shredded and hanging down in strips. Our imagined stranger sees this, feels sick to his stomach, tears well up in his eyes. He has never seen, never conceived of such brutality. He hears the political leaders who are standing nearby jeering at the man and laughing and making jokes at his expense. He turns to the person on his left and almost shouting asks, what did he do to deserve this? That's the question we want to ask this morning. What did he do to deserve this? Did he abuse children? No, he loved children and treated them with respect. Did he murder someone? No. He gave many people back their lives. Did he steal something? Some said he stole people's hearts. But how can you steal what belongs to you in the first place? Did he break the law? Quite the opposite. He fulfilled the law. So what did he do to deserve this? Why was he deemed worthy of death? This death. You and I might deserve death. Indeed, St. Paul says we've earned it. The wages of sin is death. But we're not worthy of this death. As odd as it seems, the only person worthy of this death for sin was the one person who didn't deserve to die. St. Peter understood this perfectly, and he wrote, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He borrows the prophet Isaiah's words and applies them to Jesus. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now, if you know those passages you know that they use lamb imagery to speak of the sacrificial death of God's servant. In that latter passage, which Peter borrowed from Isaiah, the prophet had written, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shears... So he did not open his mouth. 
Peter goes further than Isaiah. He doesn't just say that Jesus was like a lamb. He calls him a lamb, one without blemish or defect. His readers would immediately grasp the significance of those terms. Jesus was a sacrifice. These passages are part of a whole genre of sacrificial lamb texts that occur throughout the Bible. We ask the question, what did Jesus do to deserve this? And the short answer is that he deserved this death the way a sacrificial lamb deserved death. He was born for it, lived for it, and died for it. Allow me to take us on a brief tour of some of the more important lamb texts in the Bible, but only a few. First, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 22. And let me remind you of what was happening there. Abraham has been ordered to sacrifice his only son to present him as an offering to God on some faraway hill called Moriah. He arrives there with his son, Isaac, and the two set about collecting wood and starting a fire for a burnt offering. But Isaac's confused. They have the wood, they have the fire. They don't have a lamb. So he says to Abraham, Father, his dad, who has been oddly quiet, his mind off in a place that Isaac can't enter, answers, yes, my son. The fire and wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answers cryptically, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God spared Isaac that day from a sacrificial death, but he did not then provide a lamb. Rather, he provided a ram for sacrifice, its horns caught in a nearby thicket. The two of them sacrificed the ram as an offering to God. But the promise that the Lord provider would provide a lamb remained unfulfilled. That's important to remember. Fast forward to a night 400 years in the future. Moses is about to lead Israel's refugees to freedom from Egyptian oppression. He tells them that God will pass over Egypt that that night and bring judgment. To be saved, they must sacrifice a lamb without blemish and take its blood and paint it on their doorposts up and across. He tells them that the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, will protect them when judgment falls. They're told to eat the roasted lamb with their traveling clothes on and their shoes tied on their feet. For tonight, he tells them, God will save them. Now fast forward nearly a millennium from Abraham's time. His descendant Solomon has just completed the construction of a magnificent temple in the city of Jerusalem for the worship of God. For the dedication of the temple, Solomon employs hundreds of singers and musicians, and there's a great celebration. And when the music ends, he has the priests offer sacrifices, thousands upon thousands of them. And guess where he's built this temple in which to offer sacrifices? Place only mentioned twice in the Bible. It's called Moriah. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 3 through 7. Fast forward again, almost four centuries. Jerusalem is under siege. It finally falls. Solomon's temple is utterly razed, and the people are exiled. Seventy years later, some of the exiles return and build another temple. 
but it's so much smaller than the original one that some of the old men cry when they see it. Now fast forward again. Israel's been invaded time after time. First the Babylonians ruled them, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now five centuries later, the country's under Roman occupation. The king, his name is Herod, under pressure from the Roman emperor who placed him on the throne, conducts a national census, which sends a carpenter living in the north of the country back to Bethlehem, just a few miles outside Jerusalem, to register for the census. Bethlehem is the hometown of David the shepherd king, the father of Solomon, and the carpenter is his descendant. With him is his wife-to-be Mary, who's expecting a child. When they arrive in the shepherd king city, there's no room for travelers. They're turned away from the inn, and so they seek refuge in a stable, probably a cave, used to shelter sheep in bad weather. Bethlehem has been a place for rearing sheep since even before King David was born. When the carpenter and his pregnant wife arrive in that place, it's still a place where sheep are raised, which is curious because the town of Bethlehem lies within an 11-mile no-herding area. But for Bethlehem, there's an exception made since it provides lambs for the temple. And the temple requires tens of thousands of lambs each year for sacrifice. Bethlehem is the place where sheep reared for sacrifice are born. And here it is that Jesus is born. And in case we're a little dull and we miss the significance of that, he is given birth in, of all places, a stable, a sheep pen. And who are his first attendants? They're shepherds, the men whose lambs are penned out in the field. They're the first to see, perhaps, to hold the baby Jesus. I can imagine one of them, a father himself, maybe a grandfather, holding the baby in his rough hands and saying to Mary, what a precious little lamb you have here. Fast forward another 30 years. John Bar Zechariah, known as the Baptist, sees Jesus walk by, and he points at him and says, Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Just in case anyone missed it, he says exactly the same thing the next day. This is God's Lamb. The Lamb he promised to provide. Things are moving quickly now. Fast forward three years. It's the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Chick told us about this last week. It's time for the annual Passover celebration to commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The lamb the high priest will offer to the nation is always brought through the city's east gate just inside the Kidron Valley on the 10th day of Nisan. Thousands of other lambs will be herded into the city, perhaps through the sheep gate on the north side of the temple, readied for sacrifice. On that same day, the 10th of Nisan, we call it Palm Sunday, perhaps through the same gate as the Passover lamb, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Over the next few days, while the priests inspect the Passover lamb in accordance with the Mosaic law to make sure it has no blemish, 
Jesus himself is examined, inspected, questioned, tried, tested. You can read about that from Matthew 21 through 24. It's now the 14th day of Nisan, the day the high priest sacrifices the Passover lamb. Almost two millennia have passed since that day on Mount Moriah when Abraham told Isaac that God himself would provide a lamb for the offering. Moses has given the Passover lamb to Israel to save them. Solomon and those following him for generations have offered tens of thousands of lambs on that hill called Moriah. Isaiah has seen the Lord's servant led like a lamb to the slaughter and his soul made a guilt offering. A little baby, a precious little lamb, has been born in a sheep pen in Bethlehem, the place that the sacrificial lambs are born. The Baptist has called out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And finally, on this long-anticipated day, God himself provides the Lamb. So I ask again, what did he do to deserve this? The Bible's answer He was born for this, lived for this, and died for this. Or perhaps I should say, he was born for you, lived for you, and died for you. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What did he do to deserve this? I think may be the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking, what did I do to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. You don't deserve it, but you needed it. And because God is who he is, he gave it. His sacrifice was accepted. The resurrection is evidence of that fact. Next week, when we go back to Hebrews, we we start Easter 2 as we look at Hebrews chapter 9 and see how the resurrection shows that our sins have been forgiven. In his death, we find life. And in his life, we find ourselves. The true self we were always meant to be. The Lamb of God was born for you. He lived for you. He died for you. And to add wonder to wonder, he rose for you. Did he deserve this? Say rather, he deserves you. All of you. Your very best. God, show us this in the death and in the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.